0: So welcome to another episode of They Must Be Destroyed On Sight. Uh, I'm your host, Lee Russell, with my co-host, Daniel Harper. How you doing, Daniel? Doing all right. Pouring a beer. Just got off from work, so everything's great. Great. Uh, What are you drinking? I'm drinking a Dark Horse Plead the Fifth Imperial Stout. Right on. Have Um, I sent you one of these? No, I don't believe you did. No, no. I'll have to make sure
1: to get some more and send some to you at some point. You can um, edit all that out, that's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, I, I want to keep that on record, actually, so... Uh, oh, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm drinking a Propeller uh, Revolution. Uh, I, I I, believe I did send you one of those at one point.
1: I think you did, yeah. yeah. Is that their RAS? Yeah, yeah. Nice, yeah. No. Yeah, this, uh, but, this is sounding like our old podcast, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah almost, yeah. <laughs> um. So, I'm going to welcome everyone back. Uh, It's been a little while between episodes. Uh, Mostly it's just, again, real-life shit getting in the way. Uh, I'm a busy man. But, yeah, you're busy, and I just have had some unfortunate events in the last couple weeks that have ate up my time. So, everyone's schedules have been fucked up. But we're going to be, basically, this is going to be the second episode of... Nazi Zombie Month for March, and we already did Zombie Lake. We're going to be doing Oasis of the Zombies later on, uh, but first we're just going to get into some uh, some little general uh, topics, uh, especially one uh, Daniel uh, said he enjoyed. We were talking about uh, Jack Nicholson in the last episode, and uh, Daniel was like, why don't we pick an actor or someone in the movie industry to talk about every week and just shoot the shit about them, and I thought that was a great idea, so we're going to be talking about Nicolas Cage uh, for a little bit here first. I figured, um, you know,
1: after Jack Nicholson, it, it's worthwhile to uh, pick someone who is uh, maybe someone that we have a more mixed opinion of, uh, because, you know, we we did uh, speak very highly of Jack Nicholson for the most part last time, so...
0: Um, Nick yeah. Cage probably um, some some highs and lows, so it'll be a, a lot of fun to, to talk about. In and, and sort of preparation for this, I actually watched a Nicolas Cage directed video movie today yeah. just just to get back in the groove of, of some of the stuff he does. Sure, sure. Which one? <laughs> what did you watch? Yeah, it's it's on Netflix. It's called Rage. Uh, it's also known as Tokarev, and it, essentially, it's um, he's a respected businessman who used to be a gangster. And his daughter gets kidnapped and then she eventually ends up found dead. And of course he goes running through the underworld with his contacts in the underworld trying to find who from his past must have wanted to hit his daughter and take revenge against him. You know, there's actually a good story in that film. But this is the sort of Nicolas Cage that these direct-to-video movies want to buy where he'll have his moments of just scenery chewing and overacting. And he he does plenty of that in the film, but it's not as bad as one would have thought uh, he He actually plays it fairly straight for most of the movie and it's it's not a great movie by any stretch of the fucking imagination but uh, for a direct to video film starring Nicholas Cage and he's done a lot of them in the last few years because of his uh financial situation uh, I think he was I think it was his uh, agent or someone basically has been stealing money from him for years and he got in trouble with the IRS and shit. So he's been basically taking any goddamn job he can get uh, to make money. So, um, yeah, it's not terrible. It's, it's not, it's not a great movie, but it's not a terrible movie either. Um, but yeah, I, I watched that and he has his moments where, you know, he just starts flipping out and really overacting. So,
1: I think that you know Nick Cage I think that people um you know it's very easy today in the year 2015 to uh just kind of think of Nick Cage as the crazy guy who's in so many shitty movies who does the Nick Cage thing and overacts and and everything but um yeah you know you really look back at uh, at the early career and even the the middle career you know of Nick Cage and um for me I, I think um this isn't where I discovered him but but certainly um, something like um the kind of 1996, 1997, uh, Con Air in 96, and then Face Off in 97. Yeah. Um, He really said, like, explicitly, I want to be the Thinking Man's action hero, you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think Face Off is certainly that, you know, kind of to my mind, and, you know. I would argue that's probably John Woo's best American film, uh personally. Yeah.
0: Uh, um, although I I'd say that's not saying much, but <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Broken he's not in Broken Arrow. Sorry, that's
0: Travolta's in Broken. Yeah, Arrow, Travolta but... and Kevin Bacon, yeah.
1: Right. Are... Um no, 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 it's oh, um, uh, Christian Slater.
0: Christian Slater, yes. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh
1: yeah, oh it was the mid 90s. We were all a little hazy then. But yeah. um yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I so for me, you know, I was kinda like sixteen, seventeen when I saw those movies and you know, that's kind of I don't know, it's funny, like that that's my kind of like that's what I think of when I think Nick Cage. Like, you know, your traditional kind of kind of doing these slightly more intelligent than average action movies. Um he's made a lot of crap. He is definitely someone who I think needs a a good director to kind of either Go out to Crazy Town with him, or to you know, kind of rein him in. But um, you know, this is—he always swings for the fences. You know, you, you, so many actors play play these kind of roles, and they just play them play them safe. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I don't think that's Nick Cage. I think Nick Cage has the opposite problem. But it's almost—I I don't know—I <laughs> I, I tend to forgive Nick Cage the excess because I know that it comes from a place of just you know
0: well uh being willing to go that far well I, th- I, th- I think a lot of people just either they don't know or they just seem to have forgotten like all the great stuff he's done in the past 20 30 years of his career and they just i mean he's been acting since the early 80s yeah you know? uh, i mean he was in fast times at ridgemont high he was in valley girl uh, you know, he was doing the '80s sort of sex comedy thing, and he was in uh, "Peggy Sue Got Married," yeah.
1: was one of his early yeah. roles. Um, then, of course, Raising Arizona," Raising Arizona," Cohen Brothers. Of course, we we gotta. I mean, that one deserves more coverage. Yeah, but, you know. Um, and I think it would have been easy in the '80s. You know, I wasn't following things then; I was a, a child. <laughs> you know, but I think it would be easy to just kind of dismiss him as, "Oh, this is just you know, Coppola's yeah, nephew or whatever." He... You know, this is this is just you know. Some some nepotism you know, kind of thing, but like the fact that this guy has had a career for thirty years now, you know, and he's still like he does the direct to video stuff and does, but he's been a bankable actor for a really long time, mm-hmm. and you know that says something to to his um appeal and you know to his. There, there's
0: a weird stigma on direct to video that I don't think really applies anymore. Um, it it, it definitely it Not, definitely applied in the early in the nineties when that sort of thing really started to happen. Um. Mm-hmm. But I think now it really doesn't apply because there's a lot of great direct-to-video films that show up these days.
1: There are a lot of films that kind of get made and they don't like they're not aware that they're going to be direct-to-video. It's just sort of like it's this kind of low-budget production or maybe not even that low-budget. But then it kind of just makes more financial sense to put it out as a DVD or streaming than it does try to do a theatrical Mm -hmm. run. And you know, I I don't know if the if it's a great movie, it's a great movie. I don't care. Yeah, you know what format it's in. Um, and, I, and I do think you're right. I think that, you know, starting probably about 10 years ago, you really started to see, like, direct video being, like, a thing that people did. Yeah, you know? I mean, um, who,
0: who doesn't do it anymore? Like, there's a lot of A-list actors that do that stuff regularly now. Like, you see their stuff released. Um, everyone from Robert De Niro to, well, Cuba Gooding Jr., who had a pretty good career going for himself for there for a while. He went into the direct video stuff, and he still pops up in major films once in a while um i think i think more more or less people they look at nick cage and go oh uh he's in direct video stuff now his career has really gone sour and he's you know he's out of it uh and they like to pick on him because he is that sort of actor that's very much more upfront, very more intense than a lot of these other actors that are more you know like character actors or whatever and he's an easy target i think he's a very easy target for a lot of people sure well, what
1: he is, is um and I'm gonna just I wanna start talking about some of the stuff that I love from uh, Nick mm-hmm. Cage if if you're okay with that. Um and so yeah. I'm dovetailing from your from your from your topic there, but I think that in a lot of his great performances it is because he is able to be very broad. Um yeah. is willing to be broad, which is not necessarily bad, but you know, it, it tinges towards bad. But you look at you know, the early stuff if you look at uh Raising Arizona, which You know, it was one of those movies I've been watching since I was a kid. You know, like eight or nine years old. Before I was old enough to understand what that movie was. Like now, I watch it. I'm like, I was watching this when I was eight. No wonder I'm so fucked up. Um, But uh, you know, Racing Arizona is such a such a classic. Um, and it's it's it really is like his performance at the at the center of it that that Mm -hmm. sells a lot of it. You know, Moonstruck. Uh, he's in that. Um, and he has like that kind of. Uh, it's a very broad portrayal. I haven't seen that movie in in many years, but mm-hmm. so I, I won't I won't talk about it too much. But you know, um, he was kind of known as being that guy. Um, for me, I mentioned kind of Con Air and uh, Face Off. I, I really love him in Face Off. Um, I think that what's funny in that movie is because he gets to play both the villain and the hero, mm-hmm. um, and so he gets to kind of do the broad, crazy you know, I'm a villain kind of acting, but then he also gets to do some of that more subtle stuff with, uh, in terms of the relationship he has with his wife and in terms of the relationship that he has with, uh, I think Gina Gershon. Um, I think that's who is in that movie. Uh, I can't remember. Um, anyway, but, but you, you kind of get where I'm going there. He he, he has some more subtle moments there, um, where he gets to kind of play both. Um, uh, for me, when I think of great Nick Cage performances, though, I, I don't think of uh, everybody says Leaving Las Vegas, um, but I think of Adaptation, yeah. which is my favorite. Yeah. Uh, not just, I mean, Spike Jones is, is a genius, but I think that's a movie where he is really toned down and really you see the subtlety of his performance in that because he plays twins in that mm-hmm. movie, and you can and they and they look identical, but you can look at any either one of them on screen individually and you know which one is there just from body oh yeah he he does a great job in that the way that donald versus charlie the way that donald leans against a wall is different than the way charlie leans against a wall um so i just wanted to plug that one before you got to it um, (laughs) adaptation i think if if you think that nick cage can only do the crazy shit check out adaptation i think it's a phenomenal film um one of my favorite films of its
0: not that there are many films of its kind no, anywhere, uh, but you that's know. A, that's a pretty unique uh, film, yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, personally, my favorite Nick Cage, uh, and it, it's not, and I wouldn't even say it's his best performance, um, but my favorite Nick Cage film is Red Rock West from 1993, uh, which is
1: I'm not saying it,
0: it's just, it's a very obscure, it's a hard to get movie on DVD or anything. It's very obscure. Um, but it's just this great little neo noir film where he's a drifter who runs into town and he gets mistaken as a hitman. And he goes along with it because wow. he's desperate for money. He's desperate to make a buck. And he gets mistaken as a hitman who's supposed to be coming into town to kill this wealthy guy's wife. And he ends up going to... Uh, he, he He's not quite sure if he's actually going to do it or not, but he, he goes to the, to the house to kill the wife and ends up getting hired by her to go back and kill the guy who wanted the hit done. And all the while... Uh, Dennis Hopper shows up and he's the real killer who's supposed to be hired and uh, it's a great film it's a very subdued performance from Nick Cage it, it's it's mm-hmm. really well done uh, one of my actually one of my favorite movies of all time I, I really love it
1: i it's been on my list to watch for a long time and it, it definitely i should put that up, upper upper yeah. i should put it upper just put it higher on my uh, priority list, but um, yeah, no, I I actually didn't do any research for this to like think I was
0: just like I'm just gonna be able to think of great name <laughs> performances. So, um, but yeah, you know? yeah, you you, you mentioned uh, the adaptation. Yeah. Uh, of course, that's that's probably what people most people would cite as probably his best film all all, all overall. Uh, Outside of leaving Las Vegas, I think a lot of people they sort of that's the popular one to gravitate to as well, and and, and well,
1: that's the kind of Oscar yeah. one, you know, the, the kind of Oscar. And that's such a you
0: know? depressing film, but I mean, in a great way, it's a yeah. depressing fucking film. Um, but also I I'd, I'd say like Matchstick Men. Um, oh yes, that's a yeah. You're right. No, that's I uh, I yeah. love that film. And, I mean, I
1: legitimately love that and, film,
0: and and like, I mean, and he's yeah, great at it,
1: and. He does the kind of broad, very tiki mm-hmm. performance, if you, you know, the very, very, ch- 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 you know, um, maybe not the uh, the best portrayal of, a, of someone with mental illness in in yeah. cinema, in terms of the most uh, subtle, but uh, I do think it's a great performance, I think it works in the in the context of, of how it's made, and I should really go watch it again, because it might play very differently today than it did when I saw yeah. it 10 years ago, Cause, or Because what you, know? you see oh.
0: mostly from that film, when anyone references it, it's like, Let's reference this moment where Nick Cage overacts. It, it, it's always that scene you see on YouTube where where he goes to the pharmacy and then someone, I, I think, cuts in line in front of him or he cuts in line and they complain and he, he just basically threatens to take them out into the street and beat them until they piss blood! <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, also, I would, I would recommend The Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans from Werner Herzog. Uh, I think a lot of people probably shied away from this film because they were like, okay, this is either a remake or some sort of rehash of Antoine Foucault's uh, Bad Lieutenant. It is not. Um, I, I, it, outside of the title, which is incredibly unfortunate, it's a great f- fucking film. And it's a great performance from him.
1: Well, And and it's that kind of, you know, Herzog was willing to go just as crazy as Cage was. And I, and I think that's the, you know, when you've got a director who will mm-hmm. go there... And, and make a make a movie around the performance. I think that's, you know, it, it, Nick Cage is. I, I'm glad. I mean, I kind of thought of I kind of thought of his name out of the sort of the moment. Like, oh, we should do Nick Cage. But I think it, I think he's someone who history may look upon more kindly than he is currently yeah. seen. And I'm not sure we've seen the last great oh, Nick I, Cage performance. Oh, I, I don't. Think I think so. there. I think I think he will have a resurgence. You know. Yeah, I
0: I, th- I think with um just with the movie I uh, mentioned, I think it was even the, the last episode, Joe, which is on Netflix right now. Uh, a great performance from him, uh, like just a real return to form after doing several direct-to-video ones. Where I mean, he does a good job in those films, but he's playing Nick Cage in those films, right? He he's he's playing what people right, expect, right. and you know, for a paycheck. And I don't shit on him for that because. Excuse me. A lot of actors have done that, and a lot of actors have admitted to doing that. I mean, sometimes that that's how it goes when you're acting. Sometimes you have to. Take a role for money, and that's all there is to it, right? Well, I don't know
1: about you, but I go and do things I would rather not do for money. Mm-hmm. So you know, um, you know, I think most of us have that, but we expect you know actors to be something else than that. And I mean, you know, it, it's fair to say, you know, man, look at all the crap you put out, but it's also like, well, he did a bunch of stuff for a paycheck, and then he also did some stuff that's really, really good. Yeah. And some of the stuff that he did for a paycheck. Really isn't that bad, so get off, you know. If you're only looking at, you know, the clips from The Wicker Man on YouTube, <laughs> you know, I mean, and you're trying to judge an entire 30-year career off of that, then you're you're doing a disservice not just to Nick Cage, but to yourself. Yeah. And to your appreciation. Because there's a lot of great stuff out there that isn't, you know, the bees, the bees, oh, the bees, you know.
0: And, and I get a feeling when he was doing The Wicker Man, he knew this was shit. So he just, like, I'm just going to give it my all and fuck it. I'm just... I'm just that was the moment when Neil LaBute just kind of gave up
1: too, right? Like, yeah. you know, like you, you look at like everything everything after that like it's just been like, you know, really generic stuff, but like Neil LaBute used to be somebody that you could look at and go, there's going to be an interesting film coming out, but not not so much anymore. Yes. Yeah, so, anyway, we're not really talking about Neil. LaBee no, but
0: yeah, him. yeah. Films like that can ruin a career, like especially for a director, like that that can just fuck you. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, uh, Nick Cage. So so your favorite your favorite Nick Cage is
1: probably Leaving Las Vegas. No, Red Rock West. Red sorry, Red yeah.
0: Rock West. Yes, sorry, you're
1: right. Um, for me, it's got to be Adaptation. Yeah, that would that would be a close second. I mean, it's it's neck and neck. I mean it it, it... And my in my favorite commercial, Nick Cage is definitely
0: um, Face Off. Like, uh, for you know. me, I would I would go Con Air, uh, just because it's sure. it's more of an honest dumb action movie. Whereas Face Off, I it's so fucking I I mean the actors sort of sell it to a degree, but it's so goddamn implausible that <laughs> and right. they try to play it straight that I can't quite go with it as much as I do with Con Air. I,
1: I, I don't dislike Con Air, but I, I definitely like, you know, it's it's that, um, for me, the thing that I love about Con Air is not Nick Cage, though. It's, uh you know, especially Nick Cage doing the Alabama accent. <laughs> Hello, I'm from Alabama, so, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Nick Cage doing, it's not Nick Cage that I'm looking at in the movie. It's always, uh you know, John yeah. Malkovich or Steve Buscemi in his largely wordless role. And, you know, it's it's the it's the cast of bad guys that are more. And John Cusack, I th- I I honestly think of that as a John Cusack movie before I think of it and as an there
0: there there's another guy like who's d- been doing direct-to-video now for the last part of his career. I mean, he's and he he actually did one of Robert De Niro a, a little while ago called The Bagman, which was kind of terrible. <laughs>
1: What's really interesting is he decided not to do a Hot Tub yeah. Machine too. Like, and you know? that would have
0: been a, I'll say this. That would have been an easy, big motherfucking paycheck for him, and he didn't do it. So, you know. Oh,
1: yeah, I know. He didn't do it. So Maybe we'll talk about John Cusack sometime in the future. That would be good but, as
0: well. So. You know. All right. So I, I think we, unless you have anything else to say about Nick Cage, uh, we could move on a little bit here. I'm ready
1: to move on if you are, yeah. All
0: right. That's,
1: that was a fun conversation. it yeah. a warm-up
0: podcast yeah Yeah. so um i guess we should talk about what we've uh watched here uh in recent times i know you've got uh a couple things to talk about so uh i do let you go first sure um the first thing i like last time we recorded you know again i kind
1: of do these late at night for me and i'm and i've been at work for a long time or been in classes and i kind of i knew there was something that, like, i saw a movie and i loved it and i can't remember what the movie was because i'm just not thinking clearly um i get to see inherent vice um uh, at the alamo um this is the new paul thomas anderson mm-hmm. film starring joaquin phoenix and based on an novel by thomas Pinchon. Yeah. and you may not know this about me but i um in the after against the day was released in 07 I became a huge Thomas Pinchon fan. Like I I read all of his books, mm-hmm. all six of them that were published up to that point. Um and then Inherent Vice came out like a few years later. And um this really just uh hey, the movie is I don't want to say plotless, but kind of really hard to follow exactly how the plot works. Oh, yeah. Um the the point is kind of a private eye story, but the point isn't the private eye story, the point is the uh, kind of um, the character study and the, uh, the, the, the world building just kind of exploring this crazy whacked out version of 1970 in Southern California. Um, Pinchon has a uh, has a talent for really finding a particular time and place and, and like bring it to life with the tiny little details that you don't even realize were important. but then like once he mentions it, you know it yeah. kind of comes to life. And um, Anderson has definitely followed the. Um, I've only read Inherent Vice once, but um, Anderson seems to have followed the book really closely in terms of not embellishing a lot. Really, really, kind of trying to find the tone of the book and then just mm-hmm. expressing that. Um, Anderson is a very, uh, as a filmmaker, is very much like uh, Pinchanas as a writer. Um, so it's uh, you know it's really hard to talk about the movie just because it's 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 just hard to talk with. There's so much yeah. great stuff in it. Um, and I really hope that now that this movie has been made and that you know people are have enjoyed it, um, I really hope that uh, Gravity's Rainbow is on the is on the uh, table at some point because that's kind of the the great unfilmable Gravity's Rainbow, which um, nobody thinks could ever be filmed. But I've been like pushing ever since there will be blood. Honestly, I've been pushing for uh, you know it, Anderson is the only person, the only filmmaker ever who could possibly begin to attempt it. I think. Um, and I would love to see it. I mean, it would, it would be a Lord of the Rings scale production. Uh, yeah. I think, like, to do that, like, properly, but, um, and it would not make anywhere near the amount of money the Lord of <laughs> the Rings does. Uh, but I would, it would be fascinating. It would either be a fascinating, like, just genius piece of cinema, or it would be a fascinating failure, one or the other. Yeah. But, um, you know, but yeah, no, Inherent Vice totally worth seeing. Um, there's a lot, a lot of great stuff in it. Um, there are a lot of great actors. Martin Short in a small role just kind of kills it. Mm. And Benicio del Toro's in it obviously Joaquin Phoenix is, is wonderful. Um, the, uh, porn star Bella Donna is oh, really? um, in a small role. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, big fan of Belladonna. Donna. Um, Michelle Sinclair is her real name. And, uh, I saw, no like, holy shit, man. Like Paul Thomas Anderson, like bringing in the new generation after <laughs> Nina Hartley was in, you know, two of his yeah. movies, you know, so in the 90s anyway um definitely check that out um if you haven't seen it it's absolutely worth your time it's it's brilliant a little bit more on that kind of abstract lucid dreaming almost you know as opposed to like the early pt anderson films were very big and sprawling but like really controlled um ever since punch drunk love he's been moving a lot more into the kind of tone poem you know kind of style of filmmaking and i and i like following that um the other film which i saw recently, uh, which I won't um, go on quite as long about because I think more people might have seen it, Um, I got to see Secretary on the big screen. The um, (laughs) James Spader, Maggie Gyllenhaal, you know, BDSM love story, which uh, I won't speak to my own proclivities, but um, it's a love story and it means a lot more to me at 34 than it meant to me when I saw it when I was 24 or 25. I think that um, with the distance of time and with... um, really watching it, I think Spader's performance in in particular, I think it's kind of he's really inscrutable and hard to read but I think when you approach it from for me approaching it from a more mature perspective you really see kind of a lot more of his unstated moments and how um, wonderful that performance is. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal tour de force, I mean it's just kind of like, for me this is the movie that she should be remembered for Um, you know, she's so good in this um, I assume you've seen Secretary. Yeah.
0: I, I, I'm, not even, I'm not even into uh, that sort of stuff sexually, but when I watched that, I was like, yeah, I, I kind of get this. Like, uh, I, I really do get this. And speaking as someone who has read one-third of Fifty Shades of Grey back a little while ago, and basically had to put it down because I could not read anymore. From what I understand the movie that recently has been released follows the book fairly closely. I would recommend anyone who thinks 50 shades of gray is the shit should probably watch secretary first and maybe grow up a little bit. Secretary is secretary
1: is much more the I mean it's I won't say realistic. No, it's no, no, it's no,
0: not no. a it's not a realistic depiction.
1: Um but it is psychologically realistic and it once you put these characters in this world you know it follows that rule you know um it's believable in the sense of if you're in this sort of heightened world with only a few people in it sort of thing um and you know it takes the kind of um secretary fantasy you know Mm -hmm. this this kind of like big broad fantasy and then it turns it into something that i think is a lot more interesting yeah by treating the characters as as people yeah um with, with particular needs and particular um, perspectives and both of whom are damaged. I mean, um, it, it's, there's this – there is a little bit the, – the one kind of big criticism that, you, that that I would put is that I really wish that the Maggie, Maggie Gyllenhaal character was not um, a cutter. Mm-hmm. I wish that she was not uh, hurting herself and then, like, finds, oh, I can have someone else do this for me. Um, which I think is the simplistic way to view the film, I, because it's such a stereotype and it's not true to the to the slightest. I mean, yes, there are cutters in the community and there are cutters not in the community. You know, so it's it's not um, it's not like oh I'm I'm psychologically damaged and I need this as therapy. But for some people, that is kind of what they get out of it. And if you view this as one, you know, as a story between two people falling in love and they're just two particular characters, mm-hmm. it's fine. I just wish it wasn't the only representation of that and so it's like suddenly yeah. you know um this is why representation matters i guess is kind of the point you know but um that's kind of the one thing that i think it's fine i think the filmmakers handle it handle it well but i think that that's kind of the one element that i wish like ah, i wish they'd pulled back on that just a little bit you know um but um yeah um inherent vice and secretary are both genius genius wonderful films um and
0: if you haven't seen them, check them out. Yeah, right. Uh, definitely gonna find inherent vice when I get my hands on it. Uh, definitely in um, Secretary. Totally agree. Recommend that film. Watch that film if you really want to see Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, I mean, I, I like I said, I read a first third of that book, and that is one of the worst written harlequin romance version of <laughs> BDSM. That I, it's it's so bad. It's really bad. I read. I read a little bit of it. I actually have the uh,
1: the the book on my phone mm-hmm. right now. Um, I had a friend just send it to me. Just had it, and she was just like, "Here, read it. See what you think." And I start, and I'm like, I read better. Um, <laughs> I read better uh, BDSM erotic fiction when I was like 15. <laughs> you know, in 1995, reading um, you know kinky stories on the internet. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's funny is the author is completely on board with, no, no, no this is shit. This is complete <laughs> shit. And she laughed all the way to the bank. It was uh, really one of those, um, you'd see her interviews, just like, of course it's crap. It was never meant to be anything mm-hmm. but crap. It's crap. I'm glad people have, you know, like, I mean, it literally is like, I mean, it, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to feel too bad about it. It's just kind of like people are going to get what they're going to get out of it. People are going to enjoy it or not. I mean, I think that what, honestly, I think that you and I should discuss Twilight at some point. Because it kind of feeds into the same thing, and I think that we can have a really interesting conversation about what Twilight means and why people do it. And I don't want to derail this podcast onto that topic, but I I think that um, what what Fifty Shades, what the phenomenon says, is more important than the film itself or the book itself. I think. Damn it! And I think that it also feeds back into Twilight. Damn it, Dan! You're gonna make me
0: watch Twilight films.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, I actually saw the first Twilight film in theaters. Like, as an aside about Twilight, my my wife, my my now wife, we um met in 2007, and we started, you know, we kind of fell in love in 2008. And we moved to Michigan around that time, but she lived with me for about a month in my old house in Huntsville before we moved up here. This was right after the fourth Twilight book had come out, and um I had worked in a bookstore, so I kind of, you know, get a discount and all this sort of thing, and so. I think she owned all four of them. I think she, like, gave them away or something since then. But, like, she would read the fourth book, and I would be kind of, you know, piddling around on my computer, and I would just hear, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Seriously? (laughs) Like, um, continually. And, uh, no, she read them all. I mean, just as, like, it's like crack. I have to see what's coming next, you know? Like, it's so bad, but it's also, like, I have to see what the next really bad thing is you know i think that let me put it this way you know it's two white dudes in our 30s we don't read twilight or watch twilight in the same way that the internet mm-hmm. audience does and i think while we can say yeah no there's a lot of really crappy stuff in this i think it's also worthwhile to say well it's a huge phenomenon why is it a huge phenomenon like what is it that people are yeah. getting out of it and i think that you know one day maybe not next week but at some point i think that we should at least watch the first movie and talk about like what Twilight means to the to we'll the, right. we'll do, we'll do, it.
0: We'll do so, it i will suffer anyway. i will suffer for the for the art i guess of podcasting
1: okay and then and then after we watch it we will uh, then you can do the riff tracks <laughs> There's, like, a uh, nine-minute supercut of, like, the riff tracks of the first Twilight oh, movie yeah. on YouTube, like, where somebody, like, edited it in, you know? Um, and, you know, honestly, that's, like, kind of ideal, because you can just kind of watch it and just laugh. <laughs> it's, it's great. So, all right. Uh,
0: uh, so what have, sorry, I, I kind of dominated right. that section. What have you been watching, um, through, you know? Uh, The most notable thing I I watched on Netflix uh, this past week uh, is the RoboCop remake. And it's of course, that's on Netflix. You can right now get RoboCop 1 and 2 as well on Netflix. I liked it. I I, I was very surprised I was going to like it. But it was actually fairly well done. It basically erases most of the cynical, satire kind of things. Thing going through the original film like it's really not there anymore when, when you look at the original robocop like that is a flat-out dystopia like that that is urban decay the world in that film is really in a decline where co- corporations have basically taken over the world uh and most people are in a lower class in poverty uh this film not so much you you're you're kind of just describing Detroit. Like. Yeah, Detroit right now. Yeah, pretty much. I uh, I I live in Michigan, so you know. <laughs> yeah. But but this film really doesn't have that. Like um for the for the most part it looks like our world a couple of years from now where there are still good people in government uh fighting the good fight trying to for social justice and things like that. Where corporations do not necessarily have stranglehold on everyone, and it, it's really not as bleak at all. And I think one, that's one of the major faults of the film: is, is it's it's not bleak, uh, it's not a dystopia. So where's the fun? Where's the satire? Um, it's more an action film. It's it's actually more a superhero film. Uh, RoboCop in this film, he's a bit bit thinner, definitely more <laughs> more uh, sleek. Agile can jump great heights. Um, he, he's essentially a superhero, and he he's also got this nice ninja black color for his entire body this time around, right? right, right. But the film does focus on the human story a lot more. Mm-hmm. focuses on his relationship to his wife and his kid, uh, which were it was kind of put aside a lot more in the original RoboCop films. Here they focus more on that, and it's actually pretty good. The movie really falls short, though. I wish they had gone further. For a little while, they posit the idea. Essentially, they're using RoboCop as a sort of a media sensation to try to, you know, promote using uh, cyborgs as police officers and shit like that. Basically, they do an operation on RoboCop to take away his humanity. And there's this interesting question that's posed for a while that Robocop is no longer Murphy, the the cop. He's dead. And really what it is is a computer program running his brain that believes it's that guy. And that, that's a really interesting question for Robocop. Like, is he dead? Is his humanity totally gone? And he's just a machine that believes that he was once human and that he's still got humanity in him? But uh, unfortunately, the movie kind of <laughs> erases that halfway through the film and it just goes back to oh, yeah, it's it's Murphy and he's trying to regain some semblance of his humanity. The villains are not all that interesting. Uh, Michael Keaton in this one does a great job. No. No bones about that, but um, the villains are not as impressive as Kurtwood Smith in uh, his gang in the original film. So it's it's a mixed bag, but I gave it. Uh, if, if anyone follows my letterboxed uh, account, uh, I gave it three stars. Um, I thought it was pretty good, and it's worth checking out. It really is. Um,
1: that's kind of that's kind of what I heard about that film. Was you know it's 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 not the original. Yeah, but it's okay. Like, it, you know, like, I didn't hear anybody go, oh, my God, it's genius. But, like, I heard a lot of people go, hey, you know, give it a chance. Yeah. Pop it on sometime it's not it's not so bad what i find interesting just to just to kind of talk about robocop just for for a second mm-hmm. i mean i think that they're the, the satirical elements and they you know there's a lot of great stuff and paul verhoeven is is amazing and yeah. um i haven't seen either any of those films in a long time and, and now i'm like oh i should go down i should go back down and sit down and watch robocop um i actually have watched robocop 2 a lot as a kid because we had it on vhs but I, I have not seen RoboCop the first one all that many times mm-hmm. just because we didn't own that one. But I think that, you know, for, for me, what I find really interesting is that those films are kind of made and marketed in like the, the, the VHS box set, you know, covers, yeah. you know, where it's, oh, look at this badass robot, you know, going and shooting bad guys. And that's sort of what we get out of it. You know, like, like that's why people want to see the movie but then while you're there they get, they actually say oh no there there's a much more interesting philosophical thing going on at the at the core of it mm-hmm. like we're going to tell you a real story which i think is a is a tactic that i i would like to see more filmmakers use yeah. is to kind of say we're going to give you the the big action scenes we're going to give you the the stuff that we know you came to the theater for but while you're here, we're also going to talk about some other really interesting shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, and for me, the, 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 real core of, of RoboCop is, you know, this idea that, you know, you're, you're made, you know, the character is made to uh, fight crime. The character is, you know, ultimately a superhero to, to some mm-hmm. degree, even in the original, you know, I mean, he's, you know, this unstoppable cop, yeah. but then what power, what force do you have? What, you know, all of that power, all of that ability means nothing when against the institutional forces and the corporate forces or the governmental forces, or, you know, these kind of like, you know, it's sort of like the idea of like, how does Superman beat the board of directors of Microsoft?
0: Like, yeah. you, know, like <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like,
1: um, you know, the whole thing of, well, we're, re- you know, we're rebuilding the city or uh, OCP. I, yeah. I think that's yep. the, you know, OCP is doing, you know, all of these things we're doing, we're, we're revitalizing downtown, we don't really care what it does to the indigent people that live there, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And Robocop, for all of his abilities, is powerless to stop them because they are, you know, the, the large institutional faceless mm-hmm. forces. So um, I think that that movie is, is really, really interesting in the way that it poses that question. And um, I, would, I would like to see more um, filmmakers and more people building franchises kind of look to that model of, you know, because I think it's very easy to look at and go, oh, it's kind of an action film and I kind of like the action or look at the broad satire and it's really kind of fun and i like the dystopia but the idea that there really is a core of a great idea there mm-hmm. it's that's being explored and not just as you kind of apply with the new one they had a really cool idea and then they just completely gave up on it at some point
0: yeah so, I, you know. I agree um anyway i am talking way too much it's so. all right uh, <laughs> a couple other things uh, i saw um I saw Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit um, with Chris Pine, Chris, Chris Pine and Kevin Costner in it. Uh, basically a reboot, reboot of the uh, Jack Ryan uh, series. Um, actually, I kind of hope they make more movies in the series. It was actually pretty good. It takes a lot from the uh, sort of uh, Bourne Identity and uh, uh, Daniel Craig, James Bond films, uh, bores action-wise, basically, and also in the look of the film, uh, sort of bores from that. But it was actually a very well done suspenseful kind of spy film. had a had a lot of good stuff going on. wasn't you know any sort of uh, world beating amazing fucking spy film. but uh, I was actually kind of interested in seeing maybe more from the series. Uh, good acting, good action film, good action scenes that weren't overblown. And like I said, a lot of good suspense in it. Um, decent decent time waster, at least, if anyone wants to watch it. That's on Netflix as well. Another one I saw, another Kevin Costner film, uh, Three Days to Kill, where he plays basically like a CIA hitman. The The family drama shit in it is terrible, but Costner kind of sells the film. He's, he's actually pretty engaging in it. And I, and I kind of enjoyed it. I really kind of enjoyed it. It's, it's essentially the uh, pull the uh, retired operative into one last job kind of movie you know um and it it was done pretty well pretty competently made action film i think a lot of people shit on it unfairly and the only other last one i want to mention is from dusk till dawn 3 the hangman's daughter (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i I just i just had the hankering to watch the from dusk till dawn films again uh this week and so i watched the first one and then i watched um fucking uh the, the second one which isn't all that good but the third one's actually pretty good. Um, it's got Michael Parks in it, who people would be familiar with him in the Quentin Tarantino films, uh, like Kill Bill. And he, he's in Death Proof. He's in uh, Planet uh, Planet Terror. Yeah, he's so. and of course he was in the first From Dust Till Dawn as the sheriff who gets killed in the opening part of the film. Um, but he, here he plays the writer uh, Ambrose Spears, and he's, he's really good in it. Like he's real. The, the, there is a great movie in this film somewhere in an alternate universe that I'd really like to see, but but he, he does such a great job. It's sort of a weird uh, Western genre film for a while where it's basically Ambrose Bierce trying to find Pancho Villa and join his revolutionary army, right? Uh, but then of course it goes off to the fucking Oh we run into vampires and shit uh, <laughs> And, it, and it, it's also an or, It's a prequel and an origin story To uh, Selma Hayek's uh, Vampire in the first film for, for a while there I actually thought They had Selma Hayek in the film Because the person who uh, The actress who plays Her mother looks a lot like her And when, when you first see her it's like Oh my shit they got Selma Hayek back here And she's kind of aged a bit Uh, but no, it's some other actress, but, um, there, there's some really good acting and surprisingly good elements in the film. I enjoyed it quite a bit and it's worth checking out. It's on Netflix as well, as well as the, uh, part two, which isn't all that great, although it's got Robert Patrick in it. Um, but yeah, so that's basically it.
1: Yeah, no, that's awesome. I actually really like the first one. I haven't seen the sequels, but when you were, um, talking about it, I sort of started thinking about Tremors. Mm Mm-hmm. Because that's another, like, you know, well, there was one that kind of got the theatrical release. And then, I think, three sequels. I think there's Tremors 2, 3, and there's 4. There's another one coming, too. And yeah. is there, so, um, and uh, Tremors is another, again, I'm going to completely go off, rails, off the rails here. But um, Tremors is another film that I think we should definitely talk mm-hmm. about at some point. Because I think that film is brilliant. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I love same here like you know um it it is really difficult to uh to express like because i don't know growing up and you kind of uh would see it on usa or whatever you know like i I remember just being on tv and i never you never really thought like oh this is gonna be like something i want to watch but then you just sit down like that's another film i've just seen a bunch just because it was on and it's just so good and you just as soon as you see it on, you just want to watch it. Um, and I feel the same way about From Dust to Dawn, honestly, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, I was actually just referencing that movie to uh, to a friend of mine the other day, like, completely at random, just um, based on Tarantino's career. And oh, I think I was explaining foot fetishism to someone. And I said, <laughs> well, you know, Quentin Tarantino puts Foot's feet in all of his movies, like, it's very sexy feet. And then um, in the movie he wrote but didn't direct, he got to suck tequila off of Salma Hayek's toes.
0: Yeah. And uh, how Parker. can you...
1: Like, like, you know, oh, yes, the character I play, you know. a little bit like, you know, like, yes. And then, you know, um, yeah, Anyway, are we actually going to talk about Oasis of the Zombies? Because we cannot, yeah.
0: as far as I'm concerned. But, you know. <laughs> well, we should we should probably end off the episode, at least, with, with the actual review of the Nazi zombie film in part two of Nazi Zombie Month. <laughs> sure, sure. But, yeah, um... So uh, I guess we'll, unless you have any other business to take care of. uh, I don't think so. I think, I think
1: we're, I think we're doing fine. Okay,
0: cool. Uh, We'll go into Oasis of the Zombies from 1982. This one, unlike uh, Zombie Lake, is actually directed by Jesus, or perhaps it's Jesus. I don't know how they pronounce that. I just always know him as Jess Franco. So uh, Jess Franco Uh, who was originally slated to direct Zombie Lake, but apparently the budget was too low for him to even direct that one, which is fucking hilarious, considering the fucking movies he's directed in in his career. But, uh, written by him and uh, Ramon Lillido. I I have no idea who the fuck that is. Uh, This was also made by um, the same production company that did Zombie Lake, which was the Euro Scene, or whatever the fuck they were called. This is... Probably the better made film in the two, uh, compared to the two films, but uh, probably the more boring one. <laughs> I was bored to shit by this
1: movie, and I have very little memory of it. And so that I've been trying to avoid talking about it. Just because <laughs> I have. Um. So here's what I may. I may I just say what I like. This is all I have to say about Oasis. Okay. The Solace, right. Um, in the sense of I think I referenced when we are talking about Zombie Lake we, uh, I, I referenced that you know the opening is kind of reminiscent of Jaws mm-hmm. you know it's kind of like Jaws with zombies and um, this movie Oasis of the Zombies it's kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark with zombies yeah. to a certain degree you know it's, it's clearly like the idea of putting zombies in a desert setting and the idea of kind of like talking about like a part of World War II that we don't necessarily think about that much the, 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 the desert war mm-hmm. you know um we kind of think in terms of the war in europe or the war in in the pacific but we really don't think about like oh there's this whole other thing going on in the desert so i like that i like that element of it i I like the idea of kind of putting them in this new locale and i don't think the movie does anything at all interesting with it (laughs) um uh you kind of start off with um you know this implied like we're supposed to get a little nudity and then we don't even get that so there's there's that um, you get a little bit, uh, around the one hour mark, I think, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I'm like speaking in terms of from the, uh, you know, feminist ally perspective, et cetera, et cetera, you know, I am kind of like, well, I'm perfectly fine with, you know, putting female characters in a story and like have them do things and be interesting people and all that sort of thing. But if you're going to put, you know, a couple of models in a story on the premise that, oh, and then they're going to get naked for you. Mm-hmm at least they should get naked for yeah. you. That's that's kind of my opinion, you know? Um, so I remember there's an opening that, that kind of, you know, was a little bit of a cock tease, and then you get the lots of random shooting of things happening, um, which Doctor Who, which was made, you know, the Pertwee era of Doctor Who was mm-hmm. uh, did this better uh, for cheaper, mm-hmm. I would presume, uh, 10 years earlier. Um, <laughs> lots of, you know, it's kind of my, my what's funny is I, I kind of watched this and we were talking about Quentin Tarantino briefly, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm kind of like, this is the kind of movie that Quentin Tarantino would have just had on in the background when he was like, yeah, you know, at the video store because it's so much like I keep, I keep thinking of that scene in Pulp Fiction where um, Bruce Willis is in the shower, the girl is kind of standing there, and you get this kind of shot of like they're watching a movie and it's like a a Nazi movie, yeah. their motorcycles kind of driving around, and that's kind of what I think like is playing in Quentin Tarantino's head all the time. Like that Mm -hmm. kind of movie. And this is that kind of movie where it's just kind of random action. There's a lot of shooting going on. There are kind of character actors doing their thing, but nobody really cares. And nobody really cared making the movie. And I didn't care watching the movie. (laughs) And that's all I have to say about Oasis of the Zombies. I watched it. I got done with it. I feel like I had all my really intelligent, insightful things to say about the Nazi zombie genre in the last episode. Please tell me why I'm wrong.
0: Uh, you're not wrong as far as this movie goes. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, once we get to fucking shockwaves, you might uh, change your tune a little bit. Yeah, this this movie is... I, I don't know what the fuck the people making this movie thought they were going to do. The people in Zombie Lake at least had the insight to throw a lot of tits into the film. Because they, they knew their mo- their movie was crap. So let's throw a lot of naked bodies into it and hope people will buy it. This one, there's very little nudity. There's this very convoluted story. Actually, the story in this, uh, it has the same continuity error that Zombie Lake has uh, as far as the decades go because the, this, this involves...
1: I didn't even notice it. That's how that's how I checked out I was. <laughs> because
0: okay, the basic story of this is that this uh unit of allied forces in basically ambushes an axis fucking German uh convoy in this oasis and they kill all the motherfuckers and they um, there's gold or some shit in the convoy. So there's a hidden treasure that's buried in the oasis. The only survivor from the allied attack is this one guy. He gets uh, found by this sheik or whatever. He marries his daughter. They conceive a child, and he's estranged from his kid. But his kid uh, and his friends go to the oasis after they find out his father died, and try to find the gold or whatever. This movie is clearly set in 1980 uh unlike zombie lake there's there's no fucking question at all that this is set in 1980 that kid would have been 40 fucking years old he's 20 something in this one so there's that connection directly between the two films of the continuity era like like nobody nobody could do arithmetic (laughs) like uh in
1: like making the film you know like it's just sort of you know i i I, I Um, think i think they all thought like, like, nobody cares. No. Like, that's that's the, you know, like, that's the real thing. Like, I understand you have no money. I understand you're trying to make something that's just going to be out there. It's just going to make a few bucks for a production company. I understand nobody really cares. I'm down with that. I You know, I, I, I can appreciate these things on some level. But when it's just, like, there was a writer that got paid to write this. <laughs> And, like, if you know you're making crap, at least, like, write something interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, at least, like, oh, and then there's this subplot where, you know, they're, I don't know. Like, and the idea of, like, zombies in the desert, like, I was sitting and watching this, and just visually I'm kind of thinking of, like, the David O. Russell Three Kings, Mm -hmm. you know. And I'm like, Three Kings with zombies. Like, yeah, let's do that one. There we go, yeah. You know. Good
0: good analogy, yeah. Um,
1: you you throw you throw zombies into a into into a, you know, it is like from Dust Till Dawn, where from Dust Till Dawn is kinda of the first half is, you know, kind of crime thriller mm-hmm. thing. And then the second half becomes Oh, and then there are vampires. Yeah. You know. Which, you know, it's is trash, you know, you describe it that way, and it's in it it's elevated trash, you know, because it it does kind of pay attention to character it is there there is a through line and there is this kind of thing and it delivers the crazy effects and the crazy like action and you know all that kind of stuff but it also tells you an interesting story and that's 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 i you know you don't have to give me much you just have to give me something (laughs) to keep my interest and this is literally like it might as well be glowing blotches on a screen like it might as well just be (laughs) a test pattern for like colors and i'm just watching it aimlessly and drinking um i was drinking while watching this so good good choice good
0: very good choice (laughs) It's like, now I need to break out the good whiskey to get through this thing, you know. Um, Um, I mean, um, this is indicative of Franco's career at the time. Um, Franco, who was a Spanish director... In this period between 1981 and 1983 he made 26 movies. So this was this was
1: clearly every one was a uh, lovingly handcrafted um, piece of uh, art. Yeah.
0: Th- this is a guy who was well known for some like slightly, you know, slight gen- genre classics like he did 99 Woman, which was a pris- a woman in prison film. He did The Bloody Judge which I believe was a Christopher Lee film. And he did the awful Doctor Orloff, which was also a fairly well-regarded film. But then he he was he he basically fell into this exploitation, um, erotic, gore film sort of genre, doing films like that. He, there's actually a different version of this film that basically no one's ever fucking seen. That was shot, shot for the Spanish audience, and it was actually starring uh, Jesse Franco's sort of uh, muse slash girlfriend uh, Lena Romay, uh, who's actually starring in the film. So there's there's a different version of this film. From what I hear, it's n- no better. <laughs> it's it's just as <laughs> bad. But uh, there, there's
1: another version of this film, a director's cut that is equally yeah. shitty. But like it exists yeah you
0: know or not but i mean anymore. this this film has all the things that you don't want to see in a film like this it's got terrible day for night scenes it's got uh, a lot of really bad camera tricks like quick zooms for no reason fucking at all <laughs> uh far too many characters there there there's like a shitload of characters yeah. in this film i mean there there's
1: there's just there's just too much stuff like there's a lot of stuff going on and no Ooh. story you know a lot of plot with no story it's sort of one of those like you know, and I'm and I'm not one of those people that feels like oh everything has to be simple or everything has. But like when you're making a movie like this, I get lost watching it. Like that's not my fault.
0: I'm sorry. Yeah. You
1: know, I'm like I don't know what's going on anymore. I've just completely checked out of this movie. And whether
0: were, so, were there any um, characters you liked in this film? Because for me, I thought they were all assholes. Like it was. They're, they're all they're all assholes. <laughs> um.
1: Yeah, they're all assholes. Yeah. I, I was gonna. I was gonna. You know. The the um, all... pontificate on that for a minute and try to think about that. But yeah, they're all assholes. And I mean again, a movie that's built around like everyone in this movie is an asshole and you're just waiting for them to get eaten by a zombie. I'm fine with that. Yeah. Like, yeah, let's watch that movie. But that's not like there it just it just I you know, somebody spent like weeks like shooting this, editing it, like putting it like pressing it to film, like all this I watched ninety minutes. I spent ninety minutes watching it, and I feel like my ninety minutes was wasted, much <laughs> less the you know. But I didn't get paid for it. Maybe if I gotten paid to sit and watch it, then I would.
0: Feel yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So you know, basically, far too many characters are all assholes. Um, th- this film, honestly, I think I actually dislike this more than Zombie like and I guess y- you definitely probably do.
1: Well, oh, yeah, and I actually, I, I mean, Zombie Lake, I felt like there's an idea here. There's, there's there's something that's going on that kind of keeps me involved, at least to some degree. Mm-hmm. And at least I had, like, things to kind of, like, keep wanting to watch for. Um, Oasis of the Zombies just completely lost me, almost from the
0: beginning. And then I just, you, you know. You know like, what got me? Uh, I talked about in Zombie Lake how it kind of bored me, and you know, I started nitpicking shit that I shouldn't have bothered nitpicking. In this movie, did you notice all the zombies basically had fucking Beatles in the late 60s haircuts? Maybe that was their attempt to do a period <laughs> piece? Like, you know, oh, I can't, I know,
1: look, it's the 60s. All, all the fucking
0: zombies had shaggy hair. There were, okay, I'll say this for this film. There was one really great shot in this film. That was a shot of the zombies coming over the fucking dunes late in the film. Uh, there, there's that one shot. Oh. And that was really good. I was like, okay, that's really good. That looks really fucking good. Why the fuck is that in this film and not in a better film?
1: <laughs> or or why couldn't you have taken that shot and just made the whole movie like yeah. done. Oh, you know? Look, it's our one great shot. We're mm. done, you know? I don't know. Um, but yeah. Bring it bring it back full circle, not not really full circle, but uh there's this uh, book that Robert Rodriguez because we were talking mm-hmm. about Sebastian a minute ago, you know. He wrote a he wrote a book called Rebel Without mm-hmm. a Crew. Um, in the uh, must have been the late 90s kind of when he was getting started and it's really you know largely the uh his diary from when he was making el mariachi um which was his first movie which was made for next nothing and then shopping it around and then like becoming this kind of like indie hollywood star and it's like so so it really is this like document of who he was in 1993 and 1992 definitely worth reading for anybody interested in like kind of the independent cinema of the 90s um which i obviously am But um, he talked about how the best decision he made when making that movie is there's this big action scene in the first 10 minutes, you know? Um, And that's basically all the action of the film is in that first 10 minutes. And the reason he did that was because he's like, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show this to guys and they're going to want to buy it or not. And they're going to look at it and they're going to go, oh, they're only going to watch the first few minutes. They're going to go, oh, there's action in it. Oh, there's, there's this... Like well, action scene in the first ten minutes. Yeah, sure, I'll buy it. Done, and not realize that the rest <laughs> yeah. of the movie isn't anything like that. Like the rest of the movie is clearly just like that. No, the rest of the movie is much more uh, kind of comedic and you know uh, doing some doing some different things. But I don't know. I'm just kind of reminded. Like I want to have an appreciation for this kind of trash cinema. I do for the people that were just working guys who sat down and who got paid to make it, who did the thing. I just like you yeah. got to give me something, and this movie. Yeah, really I, give me I totally anything. agree. So.
0: This is just a basically this is run right off the assembly line, like Eurocene and any other number of companies like them back in that period. They were just basically shooting out uh, exploitation films cheaply to make a buck, right? Um, and that's what mm-hmm. this was. Like the crew that did this film, they were probably on three or four more films that month basically doing other stuff, right? So uh, this is one of those films where there's no thought, there's no heart, there's no intent to make a good film. And, well, they accomplished that because this is, in my opinion, the worst Nazi zombie film ever made. Not that it's a big genre or anything, but Zombie Lake's <laughs> better. It This is absolute boring shit.
1: <laughs> I mean, Zombie Lake is fucking, I mean... It's not Citizen Kane, <laughs> but it's at least Touch of Evil compared to Oasis and the Zombies, you know. I mean, sure, Citizen, yeah, I'm not going to go that far, but it's Touch of Evil.
0: Yeah, well, like, uh, but let's just, you know, well, yeah, in comparison. If, if, Orson, you know. if Orson Welles and Charlton Heston were shooting zombies, I would watch that fucking film. <laughs> Actually, now I kind of want to
1: talk about Touch of Evil with you at some point. So, uh, Well, you know, well what we're, gonna,
0: we're definitely going to do that because that's... Something I bought a little while ago, so yeah.
1: Oh nice. That would give me an excuse to buy it, which yeah. I will
0: totally buy it. You know, so sweet. Okay, so yeah, well um part part three of Nazi Zombie Month. I'm hoping I'll get Daniel and Paul both together so we can do shockwaves. We'll see if we can make that happen. Uh either Dan or Paul, one of the other, are going to be doing it with me, so uh, that, that'll be the next one. And then we, I think we'll go to, uh, the dead snow films. We'll do those in one episode together. Dead snow one and two, maybe might even talk about some of the other films. Like there's a couple other films like outpost and a cup uh, one other one, I think, um, Blood Creek or something like that it's called. So we might get to those. Just want to take a minute to say we're recording this on the night uh, that we heard uh, Leonard Nimoy Nimoy died. Uh, He passed away. 83 years old. Uh, Not going to say it's absolutely all that shocking because, you know, fuck it, he's 83. (laughs) I mean, he's 83. He wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like this was this vital guy
1: that was, you know, in his pride doing amazing things. Like he had his little cameos in the J.J. Um, Abrams Star Trek movies and that sort of thing. But I think it really is that kind of moment where you see that and you think, like, man, what this man meant to meant, meant to geeks, meant to people like me. I, I will mm-hmm. speak for myself. Meant to people like me. And I'm not even, like, a huge Star Trek fan, honestly. But what yeah. Spock meant to organized fandom and to um, the kinds of people that, like, make and listen to podcasts about shitty movies, you know? Um,
0: (laughs) it meant to people
1: who became scientists and engineers and, you know, work on the space program and,
0: um,
1: because he was such a, uh, a warm and kind of open guy. He was such a, you know, he went through that period of like, oh no, I'm a serious actor. I'm not like this guy that was on this kid's TV show in the sixties, but like he embraced it like, you know, pretty early on Mm -hmm. and it's kind of really like, no, this is who I am. This is, I, this is what I'm going to be known for. And you know, uh, sad day. You know, and and I, I think that uh, you know, live long and prosper. Like, how how else would you end the podcast yeah. talking about him? Honestly, you know, like I mean, it's it's such a uh, it's a cliche, but at the same time, it's it's not. You know, so
0: yeah. I mean, a, a lot of people are probably sad about it today. I'm not I'm not necessarily sad about it. I mean, you know, guy eighty eighty three, and this guy did everything in the business, like. He, he he didn't just act, he directed, he produced, he did fucking music. Um he made he made albums, questionable albums, but he made wow. albums. <laughs> Better than William Shatner's at least. <laughs> isn't it gonna be really funny if William Shatner is the last one of those guys alive?
1: Uh, like isn't it just George Decay and Michelle Nichols and uh, William Shatner at this point?
0: That yeah. Yeah, you're right. Though those are the last ones. Yeah, because James Duhan, uh DeForest Kelly, they're all gone. Uh, yeah, so if William Shatner outlives all of them, <laughs> I mean, he's in the running. That's all I'm saying. It's just, man, oh shit. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, I I love Leonard Nimoy. Uh, first, actually, the first time I saw him was not Star Trek. It was In Search of uh i used to
1: watch in search of like because it was on a and e when i was a kid so you know i used to you know in that show like it's so like it's so credulous in terms of like you know like you really wish like there was a little bit more of a skeptical eye like we're gonna explore this and we're gonna tell you why it's bullshit like you really wish there was more of that but i remember that show was on all
0: the time when i
1: was growing up and i loved it like yeah
0: but um, yeah for, for for kids who have not you know Gain the age of rationality right. for you know, like yeah, Bigfoot, fuck yeah, Loch Ness monster, all right.
1: Yeah, you're uh, right. Yeah. I, I think I might have seen in search of before I saw any of the episodes of the classic series. Like obviously, I knew, knew who Leonard was, but you know, um, I've been meaning to like sit down because I've actually never watched the whole original series of Star Trek, and I've been meaning to sit down and right. and this might be the impetus to actually like sit down and go, okay, I'm gonna do the three seasons i'm a bad i'm a bad nerd i don't know exactly how many episodes of the original star trek series there were but you know the 76 episodes or whatever i'm gonna sit down and watch them all but um no it's it's a it's a sad day just for for what he meant but but i think it's also like i think the way that we should treat it is we remember what he meant to us and make sure that we appreciate some of these guys while they're still around you know so yeah
0: yeah definitely um, and I think just in honor of, uh, Mr. Nimoy, uh, the podcast will go out on a little bit of a musical, uh, interlude of his, <laughs> uh, the ballad of Bilbo Baggins. That's awesome. <laughs>
1: that's, that's perfect. Do it. I'm with you.
0: Yeah. So, uh, the little, uh, end part will give us all of our, basically our information, but I mean, Daniel, if you want to plug your podcast, do it. Tell people what's coming up next in your podcast. Let's do it. Uh
1: this will go out probably before um the next episode that you will hear from my podcast which is Space spaceman mm-hmm. a doctor who love story sorry i'm going to talk about another fandom not star trek i, I wish i had a star trek <laughs> podcast to, to, to push but uh no we're going to be talking about the um patrick troughton season six um adventure the invasion um which has one of the great uh, villains and all of doctor who um in my opinion and tobias vaughn so um yeah check out that if you're so inclined and yeah. uh pretty soon we're gonna be getting to Pertwee, and you're gonna be on one of our Pertwee episodes we've been yes. we've been planning this for a while and i've just been the schedule has not made it happen but it's gonna happen sometime next month yeah. we're gonna be on the show
0: and i i, I definitely said recommend um if you haven't listened to daniel's uh, podcast with his wife uh, Shano, um definitely do it especially the last episode you guys did where you were basically tackling one of the big finish uh things that was so good that was really good so
1: well i'm glad it's because we had a real professional on that
0: saying, you know. <laughs> no 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 it was it was good because it basically you you two had someone to bounce ideas off and, and discuss stuff so it came out really really awesome and yeah yeah we like paul he's he's gonna be coming back again um i don't know why he
1: keeps coming back and talking to us because you know he does so we're we're gonna bring him back for. There's a particular partway he's gonna come back for, um, right which on. is his favorite episode of all time. So we're gonna get into that too. So, cool. all right.
0: So uh, we'll say goodbye. Thanks, Daniel, for uh, joining me again. Thanks for having me, as always. Yeah, and uh, we'll see you guys again uh, next episode. Bye-bye. Bye bye. <laughs> bye.
1: The middle of the earth in the land of Shire Lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire With his long wooden height fuzzy woolly toes He lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him Bilbo, Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Well, he fought with the goblins, he battled a troll, he riddled with gollum, a magic ring he stole. He was chased by wolves, lost in the forest, escaped in a barrel from the elf king's halls. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. His home in the land of the Shire, that brave little hobbit whom we all admire, just
0: sitting on a treasure of silver and gold, a on his pipe in his hobbit. hole. Oh, oh, Bilbo, Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins. He's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on site. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. we listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.